0: Well, brothers and sisters, good evening. good evening, and I bet it feels like a better evening after what we've been walking through the past few weeks, now that we come to the joy in Joel. From despair, we finally come to deliverance. From terror, we turn to joy. There's really so much to rejoice in at this passage, so, so let's just come to God and, and ask him to open our hearts so that it just really hits us this evening. <coughs> let's Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you bless us now with understanding minds and open hearts. Let us rejoice in all that you have for us this evening and for all that is to come. Guide us with your spirit now, we pray. Amen. So if you were with us last week in in the morning time, Shirt really helpfully walked through what we call the story of the the prodigal son. And there was a sense of, of joy at coming home. Where the the father runs out and wraps his arms round his dirty, unclean, rebellious son. It's such a dramatic picture of God's love for us as he he covers our sin and, and brings us underserving into a great banquet. And this evening we get another insight into the character of God and how he welcomes back sinners into his arms as we move from people's despair and repenting to what God does. And hopefully you'll be seeing that even in the songs we've been singing tonight, this sense that that God is bringing us back home. Look with me then to to verse 18. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. Now, we can read that in our sort of normal, dry sort of ways if we just take in information. But to the people sitting in ashes having gone through this experience of despair and longing for God, having confronted their sin and shame, and having torn their hearts open in weeping and mourning, that then is going to be like the sun breaking through storm clouds. It's going to be like those scenes you see at the World Cup where everyone's gathered around a screen watching their team take the penalty with this unbearable tension only to have their team score and win and everyone erupts in joy. This is the Lord's wrath being averted. This is his compassion in action for his chosen people. So if you take notes, go ahead and draw a big box around verse 18 because this is the glorious hinge in our book. Before this, the language was all imperatives, commands to go and do something. Now, if you notice, it's all historical narrative. It's it's rejoicing in what God has done. Before this, the Lord was against the people at the head of an army facing them. But now, the possessive suffixes are back. And once again, it's his land, his people. And what we get is this passage unfolds, and, and even the next week where, where Stuart's going to bring us um, uh, the, the next part of this for a couple of weeks, It's it's a deepening of joy. <coughs> So like in the first part, we had these waves of despair with the locusts. Now we get a rolling out of more and more blessing as God's deliverance comes. So all we will see is God's restoration of his people, the rejoicing that follows that, and then even a further glimpse of what we receive in even greater future glory. So if you take notes, that's where we're going to be going. Restoration in verses 19 to 20 rejoicing in 21 to 24 and a look at what we receive in verses 25 to 27 and that's going to set us up for how we see the rest of the book. So let's look at, at restoration in verses 19 and 20. So what we get here is, is the first and a systematic reversal of all that went on in the first half of the book. So when the locusts brought devastation to the crops, now God sends them grain, wine, and olive oil. And on the surface we see there's a return to the covenantal norm for following God. Land, seed, blessing, where the land is once again productive. But we should note that it it does go beyond that as well. So remember that in the first section, the, the key reason for despair was the cutting off of the means of worship. And so whilst here the the apples and the pomegranates lost in chapter 1 would have come back as well, here we get mentioned specifically the elements that were used in temple worship to come to the Lord. And not just sparsely, but but enough to satisfy you fully. So yes, there is a sense of having abundant food to eat, and and, and lots of wine is is a symbol of joy. But in the context, we are thinking beyond a big feast to worship. What they would have been thinking is that now there is enough of these offerings to cover their sin. Not only is it is to the, 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 the the, the satisfy their hunger in their stomachs, but also to satisfy the hunger in their souls for the living God. And so not only is the fasting from verse 15 replaced with feasting, But notice the scorn among the nations in verse 17 that their God had abandoned them is replaced with the security of their status. So the implication is that the the nations cannot say where is their God because God will clearly be with them, his presence among them. And so in verse 20 we see a restoration of how the covenant worked. Instead of God leading an army of locusts towards Jerusalem, Here he provides protection and drives out the enemy, seemingly ripping them apart with some drowning in the Mediterranean Sea to the west and some to the Dead Sea in the east. And after all the great and terrible things that the locusts have done, the the utter power of their attack, God just tears them up. Their great works are replaced with praise that surely he has done great things. God stands with his people. The great enemy is nothing in comparison to him. And brothers and sisters, we need to rejoice because this is there our God who stands with us. That's why we can legitimately say, Oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? That's why we can count the intense pain we feel in this world as light and momentary sufferings in comparison to the weight of glory that is set before us. That's why we can step into the fiery furnace, why we can speak before the powers and principalities of this world, why we can pick up our crosses and sing along the way. (coughs) Because it is God that goes with us. So many of us have had times when we have felt like we were broken, like we've been abandoned, And couldn't connect emotionally to the the truth that we knew. When sickness struck. When our marriages broke down. When we lost jobs or loved ones. Or fell into that sin again. And the waves of doubt are just crashing against our hearts. And in those times we might feel like the enemy is asking us. Where is your God now? But this passage shows us. That our God is a God of restoration. That one day there will be healing. That weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That our God stands above all of this and his compassion and jealousy for his people, his character and who he is, provides a foundation for us to know that he will come for us. How many times... Have we sinned? How many times have we turned our back on him? Walked away from him? And yet his mercies are new every morning. He continually seeks us out. Continually holds his arms open for us to come back. Continually restores us. Through the cross he has restored us to relationship with him our sin covered, our guilt forgiven, so that we can look forward to the day when we come before the throne, when we walk with him as we did in the garden, and we can rest in his presence. And so when we go through those times of grief and difficulty, when our hearts are breaking, we can look to that day when the Lord will restore us, because that is who he is. He restores his people. And so if you have trusted in Jesus, you have been adopted into his family and you can rely upon God to act as he said he will, even when you don't feel it. A day will come when he will satisfy your soul. (coughs) Now maybe you're hearing that and saying to yourself, well, Yes, trusting in God, that's easier said than done. Which, fair enough, it is. This trust is something that we need to to grow in. But notice that God seeks to lead us into that trust. See what he says in verse 21. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Now, when he says this, this isn't years down the line with the people looking back. This is still with the land bearing the marks of plague. Verse 19 says, I am sending, so an ongoing thing. Verse 20, I will drive them away. Verse 22, the pastures are becoming green again. And so this gentle leading is, is not a call to, is, to not be afraid. It's a call to trust, to rest upon God's promises and let them form our view of the world to remind ourselves that the Lord has done great things and that we can trust in him in whatever situation we are in. As we read through verses 22 and 23, we see the land being restored, pastures becoming green, trees bearing fruit. It's like a return to the Eden that was destroyed in chapter one. And notice as well that rain dominates the scene. Now, the plain meaning of this is that the natural order is being restored, which we, we take joy at, and it emphasizes God's provision and His sovereignty. And so we see that God is not vindictive, the, the plague is past, and the corrective discipline has worked, so he is now restoring the land to as before. But there's another, perhaps more poetic reading, that gives us an echo of something to come, a kind of wordplay which allows us to see more of God's character and plans. You see, throughout the the whole of the Old Testament, rain is associated with the blessings of the covenant. Autumn rains and spring rains, the early and latter rains, they're talked about in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus and in Jeremiah as signs of God's covenant blessing. So often the state of the land is is kind of reflective in the Old Testament of the state of the people's relationship with God. And so in mentioning rain, this is more than a way of helping crops grow this is the lord showing how his presence and blessing are coming to his people in a deeper and richer way than they could have hoped for the sense that the the rains bring an overabundance of resources that's that's not a sign of the prosperity gospel it's a sign of a deepening of relationship and union with god that is being presented And so the fear of being cut off that we had in chapter 1 is entirely replaced with something rich and abundant. God isn't saying that he's going to restore the people what they were before the locusts, but that eventually he will restore man to our position before the fall. A relationship and a restoration of that relationship that we had in the garden. If we look at the phrase, he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful, that, that could be translated as he has given you the teacher of righteousness. Now, it would interrupt the flow of the passage, so I'm not suggesting we, we change the translation or anything, but, but in the context of what is to come, it's one of those things that just primes us to be thinking of the Messiah. A kind of wordplay the original hearers would have wondered at. It makes us consider the rain not just as a a blessing that brings prosperity, but as a sign of how God's offer of grace is going to fall on all. That the coming of the Messiah is like the raining down of righteousness, like streams in the desert, life coming where before there was only death. That what God has for us is not just limited to this world, but actually finds its fulfillment in him. No wonder they are told not to be afraid in verse 21. No wonder they are told to be glad in verse 23. Because not only are their worst fears being dispelled, but they are being given more than they could have ever hoped for. They wanted to to come to God, the, the means of worship. And God not just exceeds all that they need for worship, he is giving them the way. He is giving them himself. God is not stingy with his offer of relationship. He is not standoffish or aloof. His disposition is to provide us with everything that we need to have a meaningful union with him. So when we consider his disposition towards us in the gospel, we can see that without any action on our part, God sought us out, rescued us, justified us, adopted us into his family and filled us with his spirit. He has revealed his will to us through the scriptures. He has given us the church to bring us into spiritual maturity. And he is molding us so that we can move from one degree of glory to the next. And so even if we don't always feel it, we have plenty of reason to rejoice. Because not only have we been forgiven, but we have been richly blessed through Christ's work on the cross and the spirit in our hearts. We've seen restoration, we've seen rejoicing. But it might be hard for us to really connect with that. For the people who received the promises, who who saw the locust army destroyed, there's this tangible event to connect with emotionally to, to allow for their rejoicing. But for us reading this and wondering what it means for us, well, verses 25 to 27 gives us a glimpse of what we receive from all these great promises that God gives us. and and just a note as we're reading the prophets we can legitimately do that and read these words as being relevant to us because remember we've been drawn to look beyond the near fulfillment here of the locusts to the far fulfillment in Christ so the day of the Lord that brings deliverance to the people sitting in the devastation that's an image that points to how the coming of the Lord brings deliverance to his people today and into the future And so, after verse 25 gives us a sort of summation or a recap of all we've said about God restoring the people to relationship with Him, we start to get a bit of color to the hints that we have here about Christ. So, firstly, in verse 26, what we can say by looking at how God, God satisfies His people, how He blesses them so abundantly, is that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. The coming of Christ didn't just give us a a hope in this world in times of trouble. But he guaranteed, as Paul talks about in Ephesians, an inheritance in the life to come. And we need to rejoice that that inheritance will lack nothing. What we will get from our Father when we meet him face to face will not be lacking in any way. The joy will not deteriorate over time. We will not long for another time or place. It will be the full and lasting satisfaction of our souls. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, Here, as on earth, here joy begins to enter into us. There we shall enter into joy. Here joy begins to enter into us. There we shall enter into joy. God keeps his best wine to last. On that final day when the Lord comes, our judgment will be God lifting us up, confirming for all to see that we are his children and that we are welcomed home. That is what is in store for us here in Christ. No separation, no condemnation, but glory. In Christ, our souls will be satisfied. Maybe you're going through sickness Maybe you're walking with people who are close to that time when the Lord will call them home. So often we can think, what's on our bucket list? What do we want to do and get out of this life? And yes, go and and do all that things by all means. But we need to remember that that day that we close our eyes in this life is not our last. But we have a joy that is before us. Something to look to and hope in. An inheritance that is coming that allows us not only to to die well, but to, to live with hope. To know that in Christ, our souls will be satisfied. But that's not all. It's not just all to come. Not only will we receive that glorious inheritance, but we're also told that we are able now to praise him. Through Christ, we have access to the Father. So the great disaster of the book of Joel was the removal of the means of worship. But here we are shown that we will be able to praise our Lord, that we are able to come to the throne room. The author of Hebrews talks about the the, the priests at the time, how they had to be continually offering sacrifices, continually performing these rites so that the people could come near to God but that Christ offered one sacrifice for sin and that sacrifice was sufficient for him to sit down at the right hand of God. Christ became the perfect sacrifice that enabled us to praise God. Before we come to Christ, our our sin prevents us from actually worshiping him. Proverbs says, if one turns his ear from hearing the law, then even his prayer is an abomination. Even if we perform the right things, sing the right songs, attend the right meetings, without coming through Christ, we come like the man in Jesus' parable about a wedding who comes in without a wedding garment. And that man is thrown outside. Without coming through Christ, all our good works are just detestable. All our prayers are offensive and and our faith a mockery. But when we come through Christ... Then the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. Because of Christ, <coughs> our prayers and praise are received in heaven. I was talking with someone who'd, who'd come to church for the first time. Our friend had come to church for the first time and I asked him how they how they thought of it. He said, "Oh, I love the karaoke." <laughs> I kind of thought, yeah, that's kind of what we do, isn't it? But it's also not what we do. Because when we sing songs here, we don't sing the songs we, we just like to sing. Hopefully you like the songs we sing, but that's not why we sing these songs. We sing because we are caught up with God's people here and in every corner of the world and the heavenly host around the throne who sing, holy, holy, holy. We are caught up in praise for our God because our Lord hears our praise. We don't come and and just hear our voices echo off these walls. We come before the throne. That is what we do in corporate worship, and we can do that because of Christ. So, if there's a time, an evening like this, when it's rainy and you think, Do I want to go out? Do I want to have some karaoke tonight? think do I want to come and sing praises to the Lord because that is what we do through Christ we are able to come into the throne room of the king in Christ we have an eternal her- inheritance through Christ we have access to the Father but the final, we have, final blessing we have here in verse 27 says you will know that I am in Israel that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other And maybe for us reading this, we might hear an echo of Jesus saying, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Because with Christ, we have communion with God. And maybe we've been inoculated against the wonder of that from years of assuming that we're in the club because we just do the the Christian thing or because maybe it's just so obvious to us that we are saved and we are children of God. But when we preach the gospel to ourselves and realize just who we were and who we are without Christ, just what our sin deserves, then we will know the impossibility of what we have. This sheer outrageous nature of grace. More than all the blessing of this world, more than anything we could imagine, this is our treasure that we are united to Christ, united to God. Anytime we turn our hearts to prayer, God hears. Anytime we open our Bibles, God speaks. Anytime we need him or look to him or call out to him, he is there. We don't need to go through anyone. We don't need to prepare ourselves in any way. With Christ, we have a direct connection to God people at the time couldn't have imagined what this blessing would bring. They couldn't have seen what a pale reflection that they have compared to what we have now. Because they rejoice that God's spirit lived in the temple in Jerusalem but we can rejoice that we know his presence in our hearts. His presence in our hearts, in my heart, in my sinful heart. My unclean heart. When we go and tell people in the street that, they think, oh yeah, you could live in my heart, great. Because they think their heart is a good place, worthy of God. We know here that our hearts are not good. (laughs) That our hearts do not deserve this. But we know with Christ, that is where God comes to live with us through his spirit that he transforms our hearts, that he molds us into something different. We, unholy, unclean people, can be united to the holy of holies. We can know true communion with our creator. Can you see how these promises and events are like the first rays of the sun peeking out over the horizon? Because for all that they rejoice in their restoration, brothers and sisters, we have infinitely more to rejoice in because we have Christ. In a couple of minutes, we're going to move to respond to that, to lift our voices in the joy of knowing God and what that means for us, for how we can trust in him, for our inheritance to come, for our union with Christ. But before we do, I just, I just want to share something with you. A few years ago I was counseling someone and it just seemed that they, okay, they understood the gospel up here but, but they couldn't rejoice in it for some reason. It had this weight to them that, that I didn't understand until we were reading the scriptures together and read out the verse, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And at that point it just broke down. How often do we miss out on the joys of this life because we listen to the lies of the accuser and not the comfort of our Savior? We hold our shame close. We accept grace on an intellectual level, but emotionally we view ourselves with no compassion. Twice here God tells us that for his people, the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ into our lives means that What does it say? Never again will my people be shamed. Christian, you are his delight. Maybe someone needs to hear that tonight. In Christ, you are his delight. And however we're feeling here, rather than looking at at our worldly situations or our internal feelings as a barometer for blessing, we need to get used to seeing our worth, our identity through the joy that is God's grace in our lives. We need to know that he has bought us at such a great cost and that whatever comes our way, however we feel, he will hold us fast. Brothers and sisters, I have no application for you tonight. I have nothing that I can tell you to go away and do other than rejoice in this truth, to look to God and to pour out your soul and worship to him for all the blessings that are ours through Christ. I really pray that your heart is being stirred by this truth and this this passage tonight, and you can come and stand as family and respond and, and, and know what you're doing here but if you haven't been stirred, if if something is holding you back, if if shame or fear or or something's going on, I pray that you can stand with us anyway, that you can look around and and, and know where you are and what you're being caught up to as you stand before the throne, that you can look to him and say, he will hold me fast. Even when I can't hold on to him, he will. Will hold me fast. It's a truth that we need to rejoice in. Not so that we can be the the good Christians, but so that we can look to God with all we are, regardless of what goes on around us. So, family, we're gonna we're gonna stand now and we're gonna sing together. He will hold me fast. Let's come to the throne room, let's worship our